You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. All right. So it's a pleasure as always to be preaching again as Rick and Tammy take a well-deserved break. Um, Hopefully they come back refreshed and ready to serve, because I know that um, I think they were both ready for this break. So, Our text this morning is going to come from 2 Corinthians 5. We'll be looking specifically at verse 21. This will be page 966 if you're using the church's Bible. So 2 Corinthians 5.21, 5.21, page 966. It's just a little scripture that is packed full of incredible truths. So if you found your place, hear the word of the Lord. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And let's pray. Father, this morning as we come to you, We come ready and willing to hear your word. Father, speak it to our hearts, where we ask that you would make it efficacious so that as we leave this place, we would not depart from it. Sanctify us to be even more like our beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, last October, October of 2017, marked an important anniversary. Does anybody know, other than Alex, what that anniversary was? Last October, 2017. So last October marked 500 years since a young monk named Martin Luther took a stand against the Roman Catholic Church. So 500 years ago, in 1517, a 34-year-old Martin Luther, I'm 34, so this resonates, wrote down his concerns and he nailed them to the front door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And his goal was just to start a conversation. That's all he wanted to do. Um, Little did he know that this action would literally spark a reformation in the Roman Catholic Church that would impact the entire world, even us today. Listen to how Michael Reeves, church historian, explains Luther's trial before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V in his book, The Unquenchable Flame. He writes, The trumpets blared as the covered wagon passed through the city gate. Thousands lined the streets to catch a glimpse of their hero, many more waving pictures of him from windows and rooftops. It was the evening of Wednesday 16th, April 1521, and Martin Luther was entering the city of Worms. It looked like a triumphal entry, but Luther knew where triumphal entries could lead. The reality was he was coming to be tried for his life, and like Jesus, he was expecting death. Teaching that a sinner, merely by trusting Christ, could despite all his or her sins have utter confidence before God, He had brought down on himself the fury of the church. 
His books had already been thrown into bonfires, and most expected that in a few days he would be joining them. Luther, however, was determined to defend his teaching. Christ lives, he says, and we shall enter Worms in spite of all the gates of hell. Well, the next day, the imperial herald came to Luther's lodging to escort him to the trial. The crowds were so dense that he was forced to sneak Luther through some back alleys to the bishop's palace. Even so, they did not go unnoticed. In fact, many scrambled over the rooftops in their eagerness to see. And then at four in the afternoon, Luther entered the hall. And for the first time, the minor son from Saxony, dressed in his humble monk's habit, faced Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, Lord of Spain, Austria, Burgundy, Southern and Northern Italy, the Netherlands, and God's Viceroy on earth. And upon seeing the monk, the emperor, a fierce defender of the church, mumbled, he will not make a heretic out of me. Well, Luther was ordered not to speak until bidden, and then the emperor's spokesman, pointing at a pile of Luther's books on a table in front of him, told him that he had been summoned to see whether he would acknowledge the books had been published in his name, and if so, whether he would recant. And in a soft voice, people strained to hear, Luther admitted the books were his. But then to the shock of all, he asked for more time to decide whether he needed to recant. It looked like he was going to back down. In fact, Luther had been expecting to deal with specific things he had taught. He would not anticipated that he might be asked to reject everything he'd ever written. And so that needed further consideration. So he was grudgingly giving one day to reflect. And after that, he was warned he should expect the worst if he did not repent. So the following day, it was six in the evening before Luther was readmitted into the emperor's presence. The hall was packed, and in the gathering gloom, torches had been lit, making it stiflingly hot. And as a result, Luther was perspiring heavily. Looking at him, everyone expected an abject apology as he begged forgiveness for his heinous heresy. But the moment he opened his mouth, it was clear that was not to be. This time, he spoke in a loud and ringing voice. He announced that he could not retract his attacks upon false teaching, for that would give even more reign to those who thus destroyed Christianity. Quote, Good God, what sort of tool of evil and tyranny I then would be? And despite an angry shout of no from the emperor, Luther went on demanding that if he be wrong he be refuted with Scripture. Then he promised he would be the first to burn his books. For the last time, he was asked if he would retract his errors, and then he concluded with the famous quote, I am bound by Scriptures, I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. It was no mere bluster. For Luther, it was the word of God that had freed him and had saved him. He had 
no other security. But with it, he had the courage to stand when the emperor's spokesman responded by blasting him with his arrogance for believing he was the only one to know the truth. Indeed, at that point, he did seem to be standing against the whole world. Two soldiers then escorted Luther from the hall amid shouts of, to the pyre with him. A large crowd followed them to his quarters. And when he got there, he raised his hands, smiled and shouted, I've come through! I've come through! Then turning to a friend, he told him that even if I had a thousand heads, he would rather have them all lopped off than abandon the Gospel. The lines had been drawn. The Reformation had begun. And that evening, Luther had done more than write a page of history He had thrown out a challenge for every generation. And he didn't mean to. (laughs) So Luther and the other reformers who came after him, men like John Calvin, Martin Bucer, Ulrich Zwingli, they took a stand on something they believed was fundamental to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. How are sinners made righteous before a holy God? How can sinful and rebellious creatures be reconciled to God their Creator? How can we be justified? How can we be declared innocent and guiltless in God's sight? In short, how can we be saved? You see, for Luther and the other Reformers, Scripture alone has the authority to answer this question. So, my goal for this morning... And I hope you'll see the ties with our Scripture to what we've just talked about with the Reformers. But my goal isn't to blaze new theological ground. I don't think you're going to hear anything new from me this morning. But rather to reaffirm something I hope we already know and believe to be true. And here it is. That our righteousness before God is none other than the perfect righteousness of our Savior Jesus Christ imputed to us by grace through faith in Him. Yes, there will be a test. You should be able to write that down verbatim. (laughs) Let me say it again, because I know it's very dense. I've been reading too much Paul. Um, Our righteousness before God is none other than the perfect righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is imputed to us by grace through faith alone. So turn again to 2 Corinthians 5.21 as we now begin to look more closely at the meaning of this beautiful passage. So, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So, what's going on in this short, thick sentence? Well, first off, Paul is giving us a beautiful picture of the Gospel. He's giving us a beautiful picture of God's work regarding, or good news regarding Christ's work for us on the cross. So in just one sentence, he's given us a detailed explanation of what Christ accomplished on our behalf. In just one sentence. First, he reminds us who Jesus came to save. What does he say right at the beginning of 21? For our sake. So right away, Paul is telling believers in Corinth and every Christian who will read this letter later, Jesus Christ died to save sinners. And guess what? That's you. That's me. 
So he came for our salvation. That was his purpose. Now this begs a question. If we need saved, saved from what? Now, having spent more than 13 weeks in Genesis, I hope we're already going to exactly what we need saved from in our heads. But let's do a quick review just in case. We assume nothing. So in the beginning of Genesis, we're given the account of God making everything from nothing. Right? We're told God created man, Adam. He made him in his own image, and he placed him in the garden to, quote, work it and keep it. Then God makes a covenant with Adam, and he grants him permission to eat of every tree in the garden except one, the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. And God provides signs and seals for this covenant. The tree of life is granted to Adam so long as he abides by the covenant. God then explains the consequences should Adam disobey. Namely what? You shall surely die. God then provides Adam and Eve with a helper, and he notes it's not good for man to be alone. So then you fast forward to Genesis 3, and everything just starts to fall apart, doesn't it? So the serpent enters the garden. The serpent tempts Adam and Eve to eat of the forbidden tree. And by doing this, Adam breaks his covenant with God. And now he is subject to the penalty God promised for disobedience. Now the covenant blessings become the covenant curses. But the bad news is that punishment wasn't limited to Adam alone, was it? No. Turn to Romans 5. Just back a few pages. I wasn't going to have you turn here, but I think it's helpful. We're going to be in here just a couple of scriptures. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that when Adam sinned, all of us sinned with him and now receive the same condemnation he did. This is why the world we live in is broken. This is why the world we live in is tainted with pain, with sorrow, with suffering, and with death. Because we've decided, like Adam, that we should be God of our lives. And thus, we reject God's claim over us as Creator. This is our natural state. And left to our own devices... We can't change it. We literally can't change it. And you know why? Because we don't want to. Because left to our own devices, we have no desire to change it. We are content to live in open rebellion against God. But God created us. And because He created us, He has a right to everything we are and have. And because God is holy, Being holy, guess what? God is the standard by which everything morally is judged. He is the bar. So He cannot and He will not abide any sin or rebellion against His rule and reign. Therefore, all who are found in Adam, all who are represented by Adam's headship, will have their works judged against God's righteous standard and they're going to face the wrath of God for all eternity because they can't meet it. 
Listen to how D.A. Carson explains it. He says, The origin of evil is bound up with rebellion, with idolatry, with the de-godding of God. What draws down God's wrath above all things, listen to this, is the obscenity of competition. For there is no God but God. He is jealous for His own glory. And for Him not to be would actually be evil because He is the greatest thing. So this is what we call the bad news of the gospel. And the bad news is that in Adam, all have sinned and are therefore under God's wrath. But the story doesn't end there, does it? No. And we're going to come to Romans 5. But no, all the way back in Genesis 3, what happens? God makes a promise, doesn't he? We talked about this in our study. Remember that. It's the promise of an offspring. One who would bruise, NIV says crush, the serpent's head. And we know, of course, who's that pointing to? Christ. Now remember what I said about Romans 5. That when Adam sinned, what happened? We all sinned with him. Now go to verse 17. At Romans 5, verse 17, listen to what Paul says. And then we're going to look at 19. For because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. In other words, God has sent another Adam. And this one will succeed where the first Adam failed. This is cool stuff. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21 again. For our sake, and listen to this, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. So He made Him to be sin. Who's the He? The He is God. He made Him. Who's the Him? Christ. So to say it another way, God made Jesus to be sin Jesus, who knew no sin. And this, this is huge. This, once we get this, and I, I think most of us get it, but it's either going to be profound because you've never got it, or it's going to just reassure your heart. It's a beautiful truth, and hopefully I can do justice to it. So here we go. We've got to do a lot of if-then stuff. So God is infinitely holy, okay? God is perfectly holy, and therefore He requires sinless perfection of all Men, but there's a problem, isn't there? We are fallen. We are sinful creatures. So we can't fulfill the righteousness God requires. We have a problem. God is here. We can't get there on our own. And since God's love includes justice, sin must be atoned for. He doesn't just turn a blind eye to sin. Justice will come and it will judge sin accordingly. The problem is, because we can't meet his bar and sin must be dealt with, we're actually left rather hopeless, 
aren't we, on our own? Unless, unless we can find another human without the taint of sin who can perfectly obey God's law and then is willing to offer us that righteousness in exchange for our sin. Do you see where I'm going with this? Hopefully it's making sense. You see, Paul is giving us the good news here in this verse. He's saying, for our sake, because God loved us, He looked upon our helpless condition and He met our need by Himself. And this is the beauty of the incarnation. This is the beauty of what we sing about over Christmas. This is why Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, left His heavenly throne and He took on human flesh. Being conceived of the Holy Spirit, He was without sin. Being born with human flesh, and we talk about a reasonable soul, you know, we talk about that reasonable soul all the time at the catechism. He's able to act as our substitute. He's without sin, human. This is why he is called the new and better Adam. But Paul makes it clear, this second Adam knew no sin. So in other words, unlike the first Adam who broke God's law, Jesus obeys it completely and fully. And unlike the first Adam who gave in to the serpent's temptation, Jesus rebuked the serpent and was without sin. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon describes Christ's obedience. This dude, Spurgeon could preach. Let me tell you. In his life, no sin ever corrupted his way. His eyes never flashed with unhallowed anger. His lips never uttered a treacherous or deceitful word. His heart never harbored an evil imagination. Never did he wonder after lust. No covetousness ever so much as glanced into his soul. From the beginning of his life to the end, you cannot put your finger even upon a mistake, much less upon a willful error. He is meek, but he is courageous. He is loving, but he is decided. He is bold as a lion, and yet he is quiet and peaceful as a lamb. Tempted, he was, but he never sinned. The whirlwind came from the wilderness and smote upon the four corners of that house, but it did not fall, for it was founded upon a rock. The rains descended, heaven afflicted him, the winds blue. The mysterious agency of hell assailed him. The floods came. All earth was in arms against him, but yet he stood firm in the midst of it all. Never once did he even seem to bend before the tempest, but buffeting the fury of the blast, bearing all the temptations that could ever happen to man, which summed themselves up and consummated their fury on him, he stood to the end without a single flaw in his life or stain upon his spotless robe. Let us rejoice then in this, my beloved brothers and sisters, that we have such a substitute, one who is fit and proper to stand in our place and to suffer in our place, seeing he has no need to offer a sacrifice for himself 
No need to cry for himself, Father, I have sinned. No need to bend the knee of the penitent and confess his own iniquities, for he is without spot or blemish, the perfect Lamb of God's Passover. That's why he was called the Prince of Preachers, because that will preach. So Paul tells us that Jesus knew no sin. But what is meant when he says God made him to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God? What do we do with that? So when Adam and Eve fell and sinned against God, what did they, what did they notice about themselves? They noticed that they were naked and they were ashamed of their nakedness. Do you remember how they became clothed? Just listen. Genesis 3.21, just listen. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So here, all the way back in Genesis again, and this is why Rick is spending all this time here because it's foundational to everything else. But all the way back in Genesis 3, we see the principle of atonement being demonstrated. Adam and Eve sinned and they recognize their nakedness and they are ashamed of their condition But God doesn't leave them in this condition, does He? He clothes them. But to do this, what has to happen? An innocent party had to die. And therefore, sacrificed in their place to cover their shame. Something had to die in order for their shame to be covered. And we're going to see this principle even more clearly when you go to the sacrificial system of Israel. So in Leviticus, God's law is given to Israel. And if you've read it, you know that it included a detailed sacrificial system that Israel had to follow in order to atone for their sin, to pay for their sin. The system was incredibly bloody. It was violent. And as such, it was meant to be a reminder that their sin had consequences. There is a penalty for sin. God will not look away from this. The Levitical system also included something called the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. And on this day, the high priest would enter the most holy place of the tabernacle, and he would do this in order to stand as a mediator between God and his people. Now, before the priest could even enter the Holy of Holies, he had to bathe. And this bathing served as a sign that inner purity was required to come into God's presence. He was also required to offer a sin offering to atone for himself and his household before he could enter. Next, the priest would pass through the curtain of the tabernacle, which was a clear sign that there is a separation between God and his people, and he would enter with incense, and he would create a veil between God and himself because to see God would be to receive death. He would then sacrifice a goat and he would smear its blood on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. And you'll recall the Ark of the Covenant contained the law that Israel had broken through their sin. It had the commandments in the Ark. He would then smear the blood on the mercy seat as a substitute for the people who deserved wrath. This goat was taking their place. And then the priest would take a second goat and he would lay his hands on its head and he would confess Israel's sin to that goat And he would cast it out of the camp into the wilderness. And it was symbolic of showing their sin was being removed, never to visit them again. But see, there was a problem with this system. 
They had to do it over and over and over again. It was never complete. Now here's where it gets really good. Because all that I've said to this point should be drawing all these parallels in our minds, right? To the Christ, to the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross. And it should draw us right to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5.21. You see, the sacrificial system was never intended to be the final fix for our sinful condition. That's why it had to be repeated. It clearly points to that which would be the final substitute, something much greater. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become what? The righteousness of God. So, not only did Jesus live a perfect life of obedience to God the Father, He willingly sacrifices His perfect life on the altar of God's justice. What a beautiful, beautiful image. This is what the Reformers called the Great Exchange. This is the picture we have out there that Rick would always draw in Bible study. Our sin for Christ's righteousness in exchange. The technical term in view here is something called the doctrine of imputation. On the cross, God imputes or places our sin on Jesus and then treats Him as if He were the sinner. Jesus did not sin, nor did He become sin in the sense that He was ever, had ever done something wrong, but He was treated by God as though He were the guilty party. And then in exchange, God imputes or gives to us Jesus' perfect obedience and righteousness and treats us as if we had never sinned and always obeyed. Remember that bad news? This is the good news. Our righteousness before God is none other than the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, imputed to us by grace through faith in Him. Listen to how theologian David Knox describes this beautiful exchange. He says, He, Jesus, lived the perfect life. Alone of all mankind, his life was flawless. A life of perfect obedience, trust, and love. Moment by moment, as God's eye rested on that perfect life, it evoked the judgment. My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Christ is justified by the perfection of his life. God gives to him the verdict of wholehearted approval. Alone of mankind, he stands in heaven by right, having fulfilled the conditions to which God has attached the reward of life. Christ stands before God approved, crowned, exalted. We who are in Christ are in Christ, stand in God's presence, covered with the robe of Christ's merits. We have put on Christ says the Apostle. We are in Christ. As God has raised Christ from the dead and exalted Him to the highest throne of heaven, crowning His perfect righteousness, so we who are in Him are made to sit with Him in heavenly places. For He is our 
righteousness, the sole means of our justification. That's why it's good news. The bad news is terrible. But the scandal, the scandal is that God would condescend to save us in spite of the fact we can't save ourselves. Not just as if I never sinned, as if I always obeyed. So let's make some points of application in conclusion. There are a gazillion points of application you can make. I mean, you could probably preach on this text for weeks. We're going to do two, so we won't be too long. So what are the implications on the truth we've discussed so far? Well, if we are in Christ, as we just heard, if all of our sins, past, present, and future, think of this, they've been atoned for by the perfect obedience and sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. If that is true, then the gospel is more than an announcement of sins forgiven. This is what I grew up with. Your sins are forgiven. Not my parents, but just church at large. I grew up thinking salvation is God cleans a slate. You get a new chance. God's wiped the slate clean. You know, um, tie them bootstraps up tight because you better, uh, you better walk, walk and live neat and clean from here on because that slate's going to get dirty. And then you come back and you get the slate clean. So the announcement of the gospel is it's more than just sins forgiven. That's not enough. That's what the Reformation was about. That's not enough. It's an announcement of righteousness being applied. That's the good news of the gospel. To illustrate this, the Bible uses this image of covering the guilty with new robes. So I'm just going to read a couple scripture passages for you. Just to illustrate this, both in the Old and New Testament, our scripture memory verse for this week, Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. Zechariah 3.1-4. This is a beautiful picture says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. It's the exchange. I will take your iniquity and I will give you a righteousness that's not yours. Then you go to the New Testament. And there's so many passages that deal with this. But let's just look at one. Luke 15, 20-24. The prodigal son. So the prodigal son has squandered his inheritance. Um, he's made a real mess. But then he realizes in the midst of his mess, I've messed up. You know what? And if I'm going to live with the pigs, I might as well be a servant in my father's home. And so he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. For this, my son was dead. And is alive again. 
He was lost and is found. The father isn't going to let his son go through the town in filth. He will come into the town as his adopted, as his son, his heir. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. So just like Joshua the high priest, our clothes are filthy. And like the prodigal son, we're no longer worthy to be called image bearers of God. But Jesus Christ has taken our guilt and shame to the cross. He received the judgment for our sins and now offers us His righteousness. New robes. We can't be any more righteous than we already are. That's the application. Because we are in Christ. And He is our righteousness. This is why we sing songs about being clothed in righteousness. Jesus pays it all, says, and now complete in Him my robe is righteousness. There's a song we sing, O Fount of Love. It says, O Fount of Love, divine that flows from my Savior's bleeding side where sinners trade their filthy rags for His righteousness applied. The final line of Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing On that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face clothed then in blood-washed linen. I will sing thy sovereign grace. That is a beautiful picture. That is a beautiful picture. And lastly, we're going to sing this song in just a few moments. Consider the words from My hope is built on nothing less. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then be in him found dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. That's why we sing these songs. It's a proclamation of this truth. Praise God that Christ humiliated Himself to offer His perfection to us, His enemies. Second point of application, and the final point of application, um, is in light of this truth, death no longer has the last word. When Adam fell, we fell with him, and we faced the consequences of our treason. That consequence is death. And death is an incredibly painful reality in this life. Many of us have felt the grief and the sorrow that death brings. It is awful. And considering the pain it causes our hearts, I think that sometimes we forget that this is all the result of our sin. This wasn't the way it was meant to be. But here's the beautiful, wondrous news of the Gospel, is that when Christ laid down His perfect life on the cross, and He proclaimed, it is finished, He defeated death once and for all. You know how we know this? Because He rose again. You see, death couldn't hold Him. It couldn't keep him in its clutches because he was perfect and he was sinless. If death is a consequence of sin, life is the consequence of obedience. So now, robed in the righteousness of Christ, we have the incredible hope of life everlasting. Not only with our brothers and sisters in Christ, those who we've lost that we long to see again, but with our glorious Savior who suffered that we might live. And I'd like to end with um, a lyric from a song. And it says, Be gone doubt, 
be gone despair. The curse is broken. Death is not the end. For God has condescended. Incarnate deity. He's our better Adam, prophet, priest, and king. His death, a propitiation. His life exchanged for mine. O joy eternal, O joy divine. So death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Christ has found you wanting. Now hail your risen King. Let's pray. Oh Father, this morning we thank You for the glorious, wondrous truth of the Gospel. We thank You that You would condescend to save us sinners, Your enemies. But Father, You don't just save us, You give us Your righteousness. You give us a future inheritance as sons and daughters adopted into Your beautiful family, co-heirs with our Savior Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that You would take these truths now and You would firm them into our hearts. You would appropriate them into our hearts so that as we walk through these doors, Lord, yes, we're going to fall. We're going to stumble. But that we would put our faith and our trust in our risen, perfect, spotless Savior and recognize that our acceptance only comes by grace through faith in Him. And we ask all this now in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.